Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com slash give. Open your Bibles, please, to 1 Corinthians 15. Um, this sermon is titled, I Die Daily, uh, second in the series, and um, we pick up with verse 30, or, I mean verse 28 this week. We're going through the book of Corinthians. This is now the 83rd sermon, and I think probably, well, who knows, I won't say. I don't know how many more it's going to take. I hope to get into the book of Psalms, uh, starting with Psalms 20 to 30 this summer. Um, anyhow, let's, uh, let us listen to the, to, to the word of God, which is eternally true. 1 Corinthians 15, 21 to 34, or no, 28 to 34. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him, so that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why then are they baptized for them? Why are we also in danger every hour? I affirm, brethren, by the boasting in you which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. If from human motives I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus, what does it profit me? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Become sober-minded as you ought and stop sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. This is the word of the Lord. A few more comments on the subject that I spoke much about last week, which ends this particular subject in verse 28 where the Apostle Paul uh, sort of gives us the end of a riddle where he says, when all things are subjected to him, the son himself will be subjected to the one who subjected. Well, you got subjected three times, right? And so to open that up, when all things are subjected to him, that's Jesus Christ, all right? Then the son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him. Again, that's Jesus Christ. So that God may be all in all. That's the Father. The Apostle Paul's rigid about subjection. And we have to, we have to repent of our hatred of subjection. And we have to realize that it's very good to be pulled over by the cops. It reminds us we're subjected. Okay? Men, women, children were all subjected. Pastors, elders, deacons, all subjected. The deacons are subjected to the elders. Did you know that? They're lower in the pecking order. They're subject. There was a time at the beginning of this church where the deacons were getting uppity. It's always true, always in every church, that there's fighting between the deacons and the elders. Anybody who's a pastor knows this, you know. If you have a bicameral government, two, the two sides fight. And so you'll have discussions with pastors over whether you should be unicameral or bicameral. Because you always fight with your older brother, your younger brother. You always fight husband and wife. You fight with each other. If you have a pastoral staff, what does the pastoral staff do? We fight with each other, right? That's just, don't you remember at the very end of Jesus' life in the upper room, in the upper room, when he's made it clear he's about to die, in the upper room around the table, and there arose a striving amongst them as to which of them was the greatest. (laughs) And that be us, people, you and me. Okay? Children don't want to be subject to their dads. 
Wives don't want to be subject to their husbands. Dads don't want to be subject to the elders. And who fires the pastor? The elders. Actually, usually it's the church secretary. True. Or the choir director. Okay. The Apostle Paul is not apologetic about subjection. That word is used three times in one verse. And he's not talking about sinful men. He is talking about the Godhead. He is being very specific in laying out the order of the Godhead. Now, since we're all rebels in the Western world today, and since the main form of rebellion that we're intent on right now is sexual rebellion, feminism rules the world, and I've said many times the most evil thing about feminism is that it attacks the Godhead. The most evil part of feminism is not what it does in marriage and, and family life and in the world, but the fact that the feminists have set their sights on pulling the father off of his pedestal in the Trinity. And so some of the most conservative reform pastors in the country are now promoting a doctrine and attacking the historic orthodoxy of the subjection of the son to the father. And so men like a friend of mine, he is adamant that it's only in Christ's incarnate state that he submits to his father. And he says anything else is a heresy. Well, look, the Apostle Paul says that then he will what? It says, when all things are subjected to him, remember, his father is the one that's zealous for his son's authority. You remember, his son said, all authority I have taken for myself in heaven and earth. Is that what he says? No. He says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Who gave it to him? The one who subjected all things to him. That's the father. The father has the freedom to subject the universe to his son. And he says, when all things are subjected to him, then the son himself also will celebrate his own glory and will preen in front of the mirrors. No, it says his son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him so that God may be all in all. And so what they do is they say, well, no, this, this is not talking about any, any uh, ontological subjection in the Trinity. This is not talking about any permanent, any eternal. And this is only talking about that little blurp in time when Jesus humbled himself. And why do they say this? And they make a huge point of this. Well, they say it because to them, submission is antithetical to equality. And this is the error that Westerners can never get out of their brains. We can't conceive of the fact that submission is strength. It must always be weakness. And so we can't have a weak Jesus, you know. And so Jesus must, it's, this must be a little blurb, you know, a sort of uh, contingency, a kind of temporary kind of little sort of thing that he does, but it's not who he is, you know? And so they attack the subjection that Scripture witnesses to here. Now, listen, I want you to understand the reason they do this is because they don't believe in the submission of the female of the sex to the male of the sex that is testified in Scripture when it says that Adam is the glory of God, the man is the glory of God, and the woman is the glory of whom? The the man. So if you don't accept that and you attack that and you don't want to submit to that and you want to be your own man as a woman, then you're going to attack the concept of submission in, in, in the Godhead. Do you understand this? Because... If there can be submission in the Godhead where there's equality between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, then it just gives a lie to all the attacks upon authority in the relationship of men and women. And especially husband and wife. 
And so you can't separate the attack upon the Trinity that's going on today among conservative reform people from the attack upon the federal headship of Adam over the race. That's the motivation. That's why they are pulling God off his fatherhood. That's why they're lying about the nature of the sonship of Jesus Christ. They have bad motives. And so it's not accidental that it says that the only place that there's any significance to the relationship of, of male and female is just in the private spheres of the church and the home. It's a little sort of thing that Christians have in private, right? Well, if I was a pastor of a, an important church with a lot of educated people and good music, I suppose that I could be seduced into promoting such an error because sophisticates don't like to be told that there is an order to man and woman. <laughs> I mean, I can think of few truths that I'd rather hide from my people if I was a pastor of a very rich church than that one. Because I can just imagine all the sophisticates I could get into my church who were very wealthy and would give me a good salary if I just took the edge off that one biblical truth that we hate so much. Men included. There's not a man on the face of the earth that wants to remind his wife that she is subordinate to him by nature of her sex. I see men laughing right now, you know? I wonder how many men here in the last year have reminded their wives that they are to be submissive. <laughs> you know, not something men want to do. Now listen. It is no indignity to Jesus Christ to be subordinate to his father. It does not rob him of his equality. And it doesn't rob him of his glory because who is it that lays all authority under the feet of Jesus? The one he submits to. At the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess he is Lord. To the glory of whom? <laughs> to the glory of God the Father. It glorifies God for Jesus Christ to be given a name that's above every name. Isn't that interesting? And so don't, don't soft sell this. Don't lie about it. Don't be ashamed of it because remember what Jesus said. Jesus said that if anybody is ashamed of him and his words, that he will be ashamed of them when they stand before the Father. And you don't want to be ashamed. You don't want Jesus ashamed of you. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things so that God may be all in all. Now, how should we speak about the Trinity? I will grant that there are good and bad ways of speaking of the submission of Jesus to his Father, okay? There's a lot of debate over whether it should be talked about as eternal subordination. There are many people today who have good doctrine on the Trinity who say don't speak of eternal subordination, all right? And it is true that subordination today has pejorative connotation that you, you feel like you're dealing with a parent with a little child. You know, it, it doesn't seem honoring to speak of subordination in the Godhead, right? Do you understand this? Um, so maybe you choose not to use the word subordination, but you have to come up with some words that do what? Well, I think the one thing you must make certain of is that when you speak of the relationship of the Trinity, you speak in such a way that shows that the Trinity is eternally asymmetrical. Does this make sense to you? It's not symmetrical. If you communicate, 
in such a way that shows and testifies that the Trinity is not the sort of run a steamroller over it and everything's flat, that view of the Trinity. In other words, asymmetrical, that there is something to God the Father that God the Son is different, right? That the relationship is different. Now, how might you speak of the Trinity in a way that's asymmetrical? Well, here's an option. Then what? The Son. This is an option for speaking of the Trinity. I believe in God the Father. I believe in God the Son. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. This is the reason in the Western world we deny the heresy that has been taught by Eastern Orthodoxy that the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, does not proceed from the Father and the Son. That's why there's a Western church and an Eastern church. The Eastern church denies this, all right? We believe that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. Do you see now how we have an order in the Trinity? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's not symmetrical. And so I just encourage you to use the language of Scripture, which is Father and Son. Because I don't care how much they attack the family, the home, marriage, and everything. When we say Father and when we say Son, we know what we're talking about, right? Nobody thinks that because I'm my father's son that I don't matter. And nobody thinks that if my father wants to do something because he's, he's daddy, that he can do whatever he wants. But it does establish the order in the Trinity in a beautiful way that nobody can deny is biblical. Father, son. Okay, now, verse 29. What we're doing here is we're at the end of an aside that is all for the point, to the point, of trying to prove the resurrection of the dead. And so he gets back into it with verse 29, and he gets back into it in a, in a, uh, in a messy way. <laughs> Why would I say it's messy? Well, listen to it. Otherwise, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why then are they baptized for them? Gordon Fee is one of the preeminent feminist ideologues in the Christian church today. I had him as a professor, and uh, he's probably the, the most respected uh, academic uh, New Testament Pauline literature guy that's still alive right now. And when Gordon Fee was talking about this verse, he'd read it aloud, and he'd get done, and he'd say, whatever that means. And so that's, that's sometimes what we say about certain passages of Scripture. You read it out loud, and then you look at your family at the dining room table and say, whatever that means. And that's a, that's a, that's a fair thing to do at times, right? But we are going through, we're preaching, and so we better, we better come up with a meaning because all Scripture's God-breathed and profitable, inspired, okay? And so what does this mean? Well, a few weeks ago, I was driving back to Bloomington, and I was listening to Calvin, John Calvin's commentary on this section, <clears throat> and I was fascinated by what he had to say about this verse. And I listened to it, um, uh, uh, I don't know, three, four, or five times. I kept repeating it, because I found this discussion of it fascinating. And basically, what Calvin says is, Baptism of the dead is wrong. It could never be right. And because it's wrong and could never be right, the Apostle Paul would never use it as an illustration for something he's trying to say without saying it's wrong and it can't be right. Calvin never, I mean, Paul never, never failed to condemn anything that was wrong. He was a strong man. He wouldn't have had the weakness of using an illustration of something like the baptism of the dead without stopping and making it clear to everybody that it's wrong. And he just goes on and on and on and on and on about how obviously this does not mean what it says. Okay? And I was completely convinced and all prepared to preach that, but then I read Charles Hodge. And the minute I read Charles Hodge, it was obvious to me that, now I don't say this often, 
Calvin was wrong. Now, why do I think this? Well, Hodge makes a number of very good points here. Uh, I won't give them all to you, but the first thing I want you to notice, so, well, let me explain what Calvin says is right then, okay, because he doesn't think it's really a vicarious. So, okay, is the issue that baptism for the dead is a vicarious baptism. We know that there were such baptisms in the second century, okay? We know, for instance, that the Marcionites did practice baptism for the dead. We know that in the second century, there was somewhat of a habit of postponing the baptism of new Christians who were called catechumens until typically the night before Easter. That was the point at which they'd be baptized, they'd be brought into the church. And sometimes those catechumens would be killed or would die prior to their baptism. Now, why did the church delay baptism at the time? Well, this is a very real and good question. And the answer is that the church began to see that it wasn't wise to immediately baptize someone on profession of faith because of the frequency and vulnerability of those people they decided that they wanted to take a bit of time to test the confession of faith and the repentance of the individuals before they'd given baptism. This is the reason why we don't just immediately baptize like many churches do, but we ask you to be interviewed by the elders. We don't want to enter into marriage precipitously. We don't want to enter into baptism precipitously. We want to be careful with things that are holy, okay? And so what would happen is some of these people would die before they actually got baptized. And because people at that time tended to believe that baptism saves you, they then were left with a catechumen who died before they were able to be baptized. So then they would baptize someone else as a surrogate for the person who had died. Why? So that the person that died could get into heaven. Because baptism saves you. Does this make sense? Now, what did the church view this? What was the view of the church of this? The view of the church universally was condemnatory. The the universal church condemned any baptism for the dead. All right? But it happened in the second century. The problem is we don't have any record of it happening other than this back in the first century and in the early church. So one of the problems with this text is if it had come out of the second century, if it had come out of the heretical group of the Marcionites, then it would make more sense. So that establishes more of the the difficulty of dealing with this, this parenthetical statement of the Apostle Paul. So the question is, is the Apostle Paul referring to such a vicarious baptism? Calvin says no. So then the question is, well, then what does Calvin think it is? Well, what Calvin thinks it is, he says that the way to understand this is that they are being baptized not for someone else who's dead, but for death. He says that these are people who are either because of persecution or because of sickness or something, that they are on the lip of death and that they get baptized for their death. Now, what does this mean? Well, this, along, uh, this goes along with uh, the accounts we know about Augustine, where Augustine's mother, uh, we know, did not want Augustine to be baptized. And, or uh, another better way of saying it is that she wanted to delay her son's baptism. Why? Well, it was very common for people at that time, as it's very common today, for people to believe that the work of baptism itself saved you. And so how did it save you? Well, it removed original sin. So when you got baptized, the waters themselves removed original sin from you. And so her idea, and it was common at the time, was delay baptism until right before, at least as long as you can, until you're sure that there's not going to be sinning on the part of your child. Because if he sins after baptism, then he's going to have a hard time getting into heaven. So if you can, the ideal thing is right before the ledge falls under the ZTR, that split second before you're, you, you get flipped over underwater. Okay, Dwayne, you with me? Right then, baptize you. 
Because <laughs> then you can die and go to heaven. You don't have any sins, you know? In other words, whatever your death is, you know, my dad goes under the knife up at Mayo and then he dies. Well, right before the anesthesiologist puts him under, baptize him quick. Baptism for death. That's Calvin's view of it. Do you see this? That it wasn't for somebody else, it was for yourself, but it was a a, a baptism of death. Now, is that or is that not the right view? Well, first of all, anybody reading this in the original or in English or in another translation is going to have a hard time coming up with that being the meaning of what is written here. Okay? It, it, it's hard to, go, to get from baptism uh, for the dead to baptism for death. Do you see the, the difficulty? But I would rather deal with Calvin's objections. What are his objections to this meaning what the plain meaning of the text is, which is there are people who are being baptized vicariously for the dead, all right? What's Calvin's objection to that? Well, what Calvin said, if you remember earlier, is that this can't be the meaning because the Apostle Paul never pulled back from correcting bad doctrine, that that was what his whole life was, and so he wouldn't use an example of something that was wrong without stopping to correct it. Now, do all of us agree with Calvin that, John, that uh, the Apostle Paul was the kind of man who would not lose an opportunity to correct you? It should be laughter, right? If you're not asleep, that's a funny statement because the Apostle Paul never missed an opportunity to correct us, right? We all know this, right? Right? You all with me? Okay. So it's not that the Apostle Paul is a wuss. And nevertheless, did the Apostle Paul take every opportunity to correct everything? No, we know not. He didn't, because why? Well, um, let me find it here. Somewhere. Here it is, 1 Corinthians eleven thirty four. The Apostle Paul is talking about the abuses of the Lord's table. And you know, he's pretty intense about how they're abusing the Lord's Supper. And then he gets to the point where he says in verse 34, if anyone is hungry, he's bringing it to an end. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that you will not come together for judgment. And then this little statement, he says, the remaining matters I will arrange when I come. So what we see there is that there were errors in the Corinthian church that the Apostle Paul chose not to address when he wrote the letter. Because there are things remaining that have to be put in order when he comes, right? So the Apostle Paul doesn't correct everything that needs correction. If you're a father and a mother, and you correct everything that needs correction, it's hopeless. You just spend your entire life not enjoying things, you know? Some things you should wait to put in order. Or some things you should wait and let, let his wife put it in order. You know? So, the Apostle Paul was not a shrinking wallflower when it came to correction. He wasn't a wuss. He was willing to engage things. But the Apostle Paul also did not correct everything that needed correcting. Or did not always correct it at the time he was speaking to the people. In other words, the Apostle Paul was capable of allowing things to sit unaddressed which were wrong. Are you with me? And if you read like Gregory the Great on pastoral care on how to be a shepherd, Gregory the Great will talk about one of the key things in ministry is that you make a decision not to correct certain things in your sheep. Why? Well, a whole host of reasons. One of the reasons is sometimes pain is the best teacher. Are you with me? Now, we've established the Apostle Paul's ability to not correct everything, right? But then what Calvin would say is, yeah, but this? This is such an awful error. How could he possibly allow it to sit there stinking without even indicating it's wrong? Well, actually, there is indication that he thinks it's wrong. What is that indication? 
Well, the indication is in the language he chooses, where he says, otherwise, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why then are they baptized for them? Do you notice the pronoun? The pronoun is not we, it's not first person, it's third person. Do you see how he is distancing himself from the practice by the use of the pronoun? Do you see that? Why are they? Not we, they. Now, I can imagine Calvin saying, well, yes, but it would still leave the readers subject to the danger of thinking that he had commended the practice by using it as an illustration, right? And here's something very important for you who consume social media to learn. If you read something and you come away with the wrong impression from what you read, it may and it may not be the responsibility of the person who writes it. All of us need to be big boys and girls. All of us need to learn to have discernment. There is nothing about what, 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 what the Apostle Paul writes here that requires him to keep us from flying off the handle and beginning to baptize the dead because he uses it in an illustration. We need to be grown-ups. We need to read with discernment. Okay? The Apostle Paul doesn't need to protect you from every error that's possible. And if you look at other places in his writing, you'll find him citing practices that he doesn't agree with without stopping to correct that practice. It's an illustration. Earlier in, in this book, the Apostle Paul talks about women speaking in public worship without having their heads covered. Do you remember this? He says, this is wrong. Cover your heads if you're going to pray and prophesy in worship. So they were speaking in worship. And it's not until chapters later that he says women are to be silent. Oh, there's so many people today that say, he says that they're to pray and prophesy with their heads covered, and so they're not to be silent. You know, they play this text off against this text as if they don't have discernment, as if they can't read grown-up. You know, they're still doing the Dick and Jane thing or whatever it is today. It was Dick and Jane for me when I was learning reading. What is it? How do you... What's the first curriculum for reading today? Richard Scarry or... I don't know. Huh? Bob books? Bob books. Okay, yeah. We should be beyond Bob books, okay? And so I'm convinced by Hodge that the Apostle Paul is not commending the practice. He's referring to a practice that is heterodox. But it's just so, so very common for the church to use the sacraments in such a way that they that they deny all of the teaching of Scripture. Sacraments don't save us. Now we're all sitting here and we're thinking, well, yeah, right? But look, Roman Catholics teach that sacraments save us, okay? I'm not saying anything that anybody should do anything in response to other than yawn. That's what Roman Catholicism teaches, that by the act itself, it saves you. Okay, so most of us are okay, okay. All right, you ready for this? Eastern Orthodox teach that the sacraments save us. Okay, we're still okay, right? Lutherans teach that the sacraments save us. Ah, some of you are upset. That's okay. Hey, Presbyterians teach that the sacraments save us. What am I? I'm a Presbyterian. Okay. Most of you are still okay with that. <laughs> Pentecostals teach that the sacraments save us. You say, oh, no, no, Pentecostals don't have sacraments. Charismatics teach that the sacraments save us. Okay? 
Baptists teach that the sacraments save us. Okay? Everybody teaches that the sacraments save us. The only difference between all of us is how many sacraments we have and which ones they are. Now, this is the one I'm going to have the greatest trouble convincing you of, right? So let's start with the Baptists. What is the sacrament to a Baptist? Ding dong, it's baptism. No, we don't believe that's why we don't baptize babies. Oh, yeah, you do. They're just 13 years old. (laughs) They're big babies. You baptize them on the basis of them being in your family. You make them go to the pastor's class at 13 years of age, and then the whole shebang of them are done. That's the normal practice in Baptist churches, okay? Don't tell me Baptists don't externalize and objectify salvation. Of course they do. All right? And you say, well, no, our church is very careful. We don't have a pastor's class. And I say, okay, then you know what you do have? The sinner's prayer. (laughs) That's your sacrament. And that's the external thing that if you get your child to do, you can point to and say, he prayed the sinner's prayer. What is that? It's a sacrament. It's something you can point to, and it doesn't matter if your child turns into a devil from hell and moves to California. Or, I guess that was redundant. (laughs) That's a joke. That's a joke. It doesn't matter what your son does after he prays the sinner's prayer. He's saved. He's saved. On what basis? Well, he prayed the sinner's prayer. That's a sacrament. That's a Baptist sacrament. And I don't need to make the case, what is the baptism of the Holy Spirit to a Pentecostal? It's speaking in tongues. Speaking in tongues is a sacrament of the Pentecostals, the Charismatics. And then you come over to the Methodists and you come over to the Presbyterians. What is it? It's infant baptism. It's first communion. It's confirmation class. And then you come over to the Roman Catholics and there are seven. And then you, you've got the, listen, always, all through history, the church has tried to objectify the work of the Holy Spirit in such a way that they can control it with physical actions. And God says, uh-uh. And God doesn't care whether he's saying no to a Presbyterian or to a Roman Catholic. We cannot jack God around with words and actions. He wants our heart. And it is only salvation by grace through faith. And that grace is repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. The only object that can save us is the blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's it. It is not your faith in Jesus Christ that saves you. You can turn faith into a sacrament. It is Jesus who saves you. And faith is only the instrument that God uses to give us Jesus. Okay? And these are important distinctions. Now, uh, it's very trendy today among Presbyterians to say, to, to, to say that, that we've had a wrong view of the sacraments and, and the sacraments save us. So people will talk about, look to your baptism. You know, you're, you have doubts about the condition of your soul. Look to your baptism. There's a sense in which it's right but not the way they mean it. <laughs> they don't mean it rightly. They mean it wrongly. They're talking about the objective act of baptism. And how do we know this? Well, we know this because what they'll say is, well, Scripture itself says what? What do they quote? They always quote one text, which is found in 1 Peter three twenty-one and 22, where it says, corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. Now, if you wanted to to believe that all Israel is Israel, contrary to what Paul says in Romans, if you wanted to believe that it is the children of the flesh and not the children of the spirit who are saved, if you wanted to believe that circumcision of the skin is the only thing that's needed and not circumcision of the heart, 
then you would go here and you'd say, see, na 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 poop poo baptism now saves you, right? And that's what they all do. You look them up online and they just, they, a harp of one, 10,000 strings, harps on that one string forever, okay? But listen to what the text says. If you ever have them do this to you, get them to read the book of Romans. You know, the entire book just obliterates the argument. But bring them precisely here where they quote from, where it says baptism now saves you. And immediately it has, it has the negative it says, not the removal of dirt from the flesh. Now, come on. Baptism now says, not the removal of dirt. What is the act itself of baptism but the removal of dirt? By water. Right? If we're going to objectify it, we have to objectify it with the removal of what? The removal of dirt from the flesh. So what is in opposition to the removal of the dirt of the flesh? It's always the same thing. It's Jesus Christ. God didn't give us sacraments so that we could turn from his son. And it's, a, it's, it's, it's the universal error of every group that has ever worshipped God that they will try to objectify salvation in such a way that they can jack around salvation, jack around God. And, it, you know, it differs what, what their sacraments are. We don't ever forget what it says in Romans, which is, it's not the children of the flesh, but the children of promise. And then in case you didn't get it, because you're a fond mother who wants to know that her children are saved, despite the bad fruit of their lives, it goes on and it says that God said, Jacob, I have loved, and Esau, I have hated. One mother one covenantal mother, one child damned and the other saved. I don't say this because I want you to despair for your children, but we must never, ever give in to the error that is universal across the church of thinking that we can forsake the preaching of repentance and faith in Jesus Christ for the sake of doing things and getting our children to do things. Okay? And it's an error that Baptists and Presbyterians and Roman Catholics all have in common. All right, let's bring it to an end. The Apostle Paul goes on and he says, If the dead are not raised at all, then why are they baptized for them? Why are we also in danger? Remember, he's proving the resurrection, and now he he says they baptize for them. But we, we are in danger every hour, and I want all of you to realize that this is the mark of a faithful shepherd. A faithful shepherd is in danger every hour. The Apostle Paul did not have to prove what he said. He just said it. We, we're in danger every hour. And then in the next verse, he goes on and says, why are we also in danger every hour? I affirm, brethren, by the boasting in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. In danger every hour, and he dies daily. And this is the mark of a faithful shepherd. A faithful shepherd is always fighting wolves. Calvin puts it this way. Calvin says that a faithful shepherd has, has two voices. One voice is to reassure the sheep, and the other voice is to kill, to kill the, the wolves. <laughs> Remember, Jesus says that the unfaithful shepherd is the one that sees the danger and runs. 
And listen, you have to, over your lifetime, cultivate the ability of recognizing a shepherd who's fleeing. Okay, you remember how Jesus said that the sheep know his voice? What's the voice of a shepherd? The voice of a shepherd is scary. If you have a shepherd and he doesn't scare you, he's not a faithful shepherd. Because God has never put us in a place in history where there is not a need to be killing wolves. You may get tired of that tone of voice. You may get tired of your shepherds warning you. You may have a, feel a bit of a relief when you go on vacation and, and sit and listen to a helpful thought for the week and don't have the pastor saying anything particular to you as you leave. But that's not what you want. You want the Apostle Paul to write you and to just take you apart on issue after issue after issue after issue. Do you know our pastors are absolutely sick and tired of the book of 1 Corinthians? Is that true, Phil? You're all wanting me to be done, right? Come on. Is this true, Amy? That is true. true. All right. We all get sick of it. But, oh, when we don't have it, when our teachers are removed from us, we know that we're the condition of the sheep at Jesus' time. He said, he looked on them, and he felt compassion. Why? Because they were sheep without a shepherd. It's an awful thing to not have a shepherd. It's an awful thing to not have the privilege of being rebuked by a pastor or elder, an older woman of the church. And so the Apostle Paul says, what? He says, we're in danger every hour and we die daily. I die daily. And then he says this, if from human motives I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus, what does it profit me? And everybody argues about that, whether or not it's, you know, the, uh, the games where they actually did make people fight, you know, the wild beasts, or whether he's just speaking metaphorically. And, you know, with the Apostle Paul, it doesn't really matter. I don't think the Apostle Paul kept track of which pain was greater. Uh, Alexander, the metal worker who did him great harm, you know, Barnabas, or I mean John Mark, when he left them in danger, or when he was shipwrecked, or beaten, or stoned, or I don't think that Jesus was keeping track of which particular pain was more acute when he was on the cross, the shame, the sin that he bore, or the suffering of his body. The Apostle Paul says what? Danger every hour, die daily, fought with wild beasts at Ephesus, and you just feel the weariness of this faithful shepherd. You love him. And then he says this. He says, if the dead aren't raised, (laughs) let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Can you hear the Apostle Paul saying that? And then he says this. Do not be deceived. And this is written for every one of you that has a Facebook page. Bad company corrupts good morals. When it says bad company, it's not referring to the band. Come to me. Always on my mind. Destiny. He's not referring to bad to the bone. Let me tell you something, bad company 
J.J. Giles, Greg Allman, they are the bad company he's talking about because they corrupt good morals. That's why I said to the parents today in Sunday school, you need to control the music your children listen to. But he's not referring to this individual and this individual and this band and this band. What he's referring to is associations when he says uh, company. Company is not referring to a corporation and it's not referring to sitting down um, with people that don't belong to your home. It's referring to people that you're companions. It's referring to relationships. So what it's saying is bad relationships corrupt good doctrine. And those of you that consume social media, and that's where you get your significance in life, almost always you're entirely ignorant of my teaching online. You don't read it. You think it's some, for other people, that it doesn't matter if you understand the battle over the Trinity. And so you just sit there and lay low. Brer Rabbit, he lay low. Because you don't believe what Bible says, which is bad associations corrupt good doctrine, good morals. You think you can hang with all your godless friends publicly, and it, it don't matter. We got Tim Bailey to blow his mouth off, and as long as we go to a church where the pastor's faithful to blow his stupid blank mouth off, that's as much public righteousness as I need. It, it doesn't matter what I say because I'm just a woman. Tim tells me that all the time. Come on, you guys. Where is your faith? Tech all the liars of the media. Put in comments. Give likes to the righteous. Because we're not wrestling with flesh and blood. This actually is sinister. This is the principalities and powers attacking the righteousness of God. It's nothing less. You know how they always say, you know, like, uh, I don't know which way it is, but it's one of their favorite statements. It's, it's like, uh, I don't know, what is it? Is it drive locally and fly globally? What is it? Eat, eat eat globally and drink locally? What is it? How, how does that go? I forget it. What is it? Oh, think. Think globally and act locally. Well, let's take them at their word. Let's think principalities and powers and let's act. Act! All of you. Have any of you taken a public stand or are you so concerned to protect your bad company? They were one of my favorite bands. So I got their music in my head as I'm preaching, right? Okay, I'm back. How have you embraced the shame of the gospel of Jesus Christ this week? How have you done it? Or do you just want to keep protecting your bad companionship and bad relationships? You just keep want, wanting to keep hiding with a sort of milk toast Christianity on your Facebook page. You know, the, the greatest faith you have is a little like. You know, you'll give a like to something. You know, you won't forward it. And you certainly will write it yourself. Okay, fine. You're ashamed of Jesus, you're ashamed of his words, and you're ashamed of his servants. Okay, okay, here's how the Apostle Paul ends. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Become sober-minded. <laughs> you want me to read that the way I should read it? Okay, all right, okay. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Become sober-minded as you want. And stop sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. Do you think that's how Paul would have said it if you were here? No, okay, I'll read it again. You ready? Okay. 
Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Become sober-minded as you ought and stop sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. You have to love the Apostle Paul. You have to love him. He just is not flattering us. He's not pandering. He knows me. I have no knowledge of God, and he says it to my shame. People, your life is short. And you know what John Lennon says about life, right? He says life is what happens while you're waiting for it to happen. And you're setting your trajectory right now. You may think you're too young to be setting your trajectory, but let me tell you, if you're in junior high and high school and college age and you're taking on shame for Jesus Christ, you will be given great opportunities by God because he says those who are faithful with little things will be granted larger. Don't miss the battle. It be happening. (laughs) Whether you like it or not, it be happening. And you have a chance to get glory. But if you don't choose to have glory, if you're ashamed of Jesus and his words, guess what? Your choices will also follow one another. And since I'm walking in this direction, that must mean you're going to become a Baptist. That's a joke. I thought you'd laugh, but you didn't laugh. What I really mean is, you will then have made your choice that you will keep yourself from human shame, and so Jesus will be ashamed of you when you stand before the judgment seat of God. Do you understand? That's the alternative to being counted worthy of suffering shame for the gospel. You say, no, I won't, I won't embrace that. I'm going to continue to have the friendships I want. I'm not going to look at, I'm not going to judge people. Jesus didn't judge people. You know, all that bunk that you all have to listen to. And so when it comes to the judgment seat of God, Jesus will turn away from you. Because you have made your choices. And your your grandmother ain't going to be there to protect you. And so this is what's at stake. Listen, I say it to your shame this week that I have not seen more of you standing up in defense of Jesus. You have every opportunity to do it. You have an unbelievable social media platform to do it from. You don't even have to talk to your next-door neighbor. You can just talk to the world. But boy, we just have so many bets to hedge and so many jobs to keep and so much money to protect and, and such a stellar reputation. I'll end with this. I had gone through a battle with R.C. Sproul on trying to get people to stop messing with the Bible. And we ran into each other at a conference up in Chicago. It was in the foyer of the PCA church there. And we were talking. And we were commenting on how few evangelical leaders were willing to say no to the people perverting the Bible. And... It was, a, it was a real battle. We had wrestled with beasts in Ephesus with each other. So, you know, men bond in that kind of situation. And he said to me, you know, Tim, he said, before I die, there's a book I'm going to write. And I said, really, R.C., what is it? And he said, well, it's going to be called The Myth of Influence. And I said, really, what, what's the subject? And he said, well, you know, all my life, he said, I've had friends who have been in high places, And he said, I've tried to get them to stand for God's truth. And he said, what they all say to me is, well, no, I have have a lot of influence and I have to protect my influence. And he said, then I wait and I watch because I know there's going to come a time where they're going to actually use their influence they've been protecting. But he said, you know what I see, Tim, over my whole lifetime? He said, they never actually use their influence. So what are you waiting for? 
for heaven's sakes, speak. Okay? <laughs> Please. Okay, let's pray. <laughs> 